chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. Yahweh gives instructions for the lampstand. Yahweh spoke to Moses, Command the Israelites to bring to you the pure oil and the beaten olives for the light, to make a lamp burn continually outside the veil and the canopy of the congregation in the meeting tent. Aaron must arrange it from evening until morning before the Yahweh continually. This is a perpetual statue throughout your generations. On the ceremonial pier lampstands, he must arrange the lamps before Yahweh continually. You must take choice wheat flour and bake twelve loaves, and there must be two-tenths of an ephah of flour in each loaf, and you must set them in two rows and six in row, and on the ceremonial pure table, which is the table of showbread, before Yahweh. You must put frankincense on each row, and it will become a memorial proportion for a bread, a gift, to Yahweh. Each Sabbath day, Aaron must arrange it before Yahweh continually. This portion is from the Israelites as a perpetual covenant, and it will belong to Aaron and his sons, and they must eat it in the holy place because it must be holy to him, a perpetual allotted portion from the gifts of Yahweh. Now, why is this in there with all these Sabbaths? Because this is the point. The point is that God is linking the lampstand and the table of showbread together. Remember, they were on opposite sides of the, the, the longer part of the tabernacle. Now, when we get to Numbers, Numbers is going to tell us that Aaron is to make sure that the light is directed, that it actually shines on the table of showbread. So the lampstand is supposed to be arranged in such a way that it becomes like a spotlight and table of showbread. Here he's telling you that the lamp and the bread are to be restored every week and every day in accordance with each other. He's linking these together. Why? Because remember I told you that the lampstand represents the tree of life from the Garden of Eden because it's carved to look like a tree with almond buds and almonds, which is the first flower to bloom every year, and it represents the sweetness of life and life. And then it also burns light, which is the light of God. And then that light is the shine on the table of showbread, which is the 12 loaves of bread of how God provided for the people. So the, the lamp is the tree of life, and the table of showbread is the fruit of that tree. And the idea is that this is the light of God that dwells with us, and the 12 loaves represent the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the banquet table of God. And God is inviting the 12 tribes to sit at his banquet table and eat with him. And when we get to Christ, how often does Christ talk about the great banquet? And in fact, when you get to the book of Revelation, chapter 19 is all about the great banquet is finally here. And the idea is that God has prepared a table for us. And he has invited us to sit with him. Because to sit and eat a meal with somebody is to be in the same family with them. And then why is this all fit in with these seven festivals? Because this is the whole point. These seven festivals are not about legalism. These seven festivals are about stepping into the banquet room of God that he's invited for you and prepared a place for you. And now you get to sit at his table and eat with him because he has made you family. And this is why Hebrews says that Christ stands in the midst of us and is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters because of what he did for us. And this is the point here. God is saying, I'm inviting you in to sit at my banquet table. Will you join me? And that's why Jesus goes on and tells a parable of sending out his servants. And people are like, oh, I'm too busy for this, or I'm too busy for that. And he keeps sending people out until somebody comes. 
Because God loves us so much that he wants somebody at that banquet table. He would love to all be there. But he doesn't force us to do anything. So chapter 24, verse 10. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the Israelites. And the Israelite woman's son and an Israelite man had a fight in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son misused the name of uh, the name, meaning the name of Yahweh, and cursed so that it brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shelahmeth, daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan. So they placed him in custody until they were able to make a clear legal decision for themselves based on the words in the mouth of Yahweh. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, Bring the one who cursed, uh, who cursed outside the camp, and all who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the whole congregation is to stone him to death. Moreover, you are to tell the Israelites, If any man curses his God, he will bear responsibility for his sin. And one who misuses the name of Yahweh must surely be put to death. The whole congregation must surely stone him, whether he is a foreigner or a native citizen. When he misuses the name, he must put forward, put to death. Now, wow, that seems kind of harsh. He says the name of Yahweh and he's put to death. And that's not exactly what's going on. What's going on here is this guy has gotten in a fight. And the judgment is not on that he said the name of Yahweh, because that would mean that every single person in the Bible would have to be stoned but that he used the name of Yahweh as a curse. Now remember, cursing someone is not like this Harry Potter magical putting a curse on you, like I hope you turn to a newt, okay? The idea is that you're pronouncing judgment on them. And ultimately, cursing has to do with the God abandoning you. And not in abandoning you like, I don't love you anymore, you can't be saved, or I will never ever let you be saved, but... I'm removing my protection, and I'm removing my blessing, and now life is just going to happen to you. Have you ever thought about all the things that could happen to you every day and don't? (laughs) Just watch the news. That will kind of give you an idea of everything that could happen to you. And yet God is there protecting you. And so God removes himself, and he passively steps back and lets you go, and sometimes he actively steps in and strikes you down, but most of the time, He passively steps back. That's what we see in Romans. Because they gave themselves over to sexual immorality and all that kind of stuff. God gave them over. He let just those... The worst thing that could ever happen to you is that you get what you want. That's basically what the Bible is trying to make. Like, what was God's judgment on them? He gave them exactly what they wanted. And so that's what he's saying here. So this guy basically says that he thinks he has the right to say, in Yahweh's name... I curse you. I declare that God should back off you. I declare that God should no longer protect you. I declare that God should strike you down dead. That's dangerous. And so he is using the name of Yahweh to curse somebody when, remember, the foremost character of God is love, and he has no right or authority to speak on Yahweh's behalf. And that is the judgment to have the audacity to speak on God's behalf when God hasn't spoken to you. Specifically communicating more of judgment rather than mercy. And so this is what he gets stoned for. And that's, and then what's interesting is that everybody heard this curse, and in a way that this is what's so foreign to us as Americans because we're so individualistic. Even I have a hard time grasping this one because I'm an American. 
But the whole community became defiled because of that. Why did they have to lay their hands on the same thing that they had to do with the animal. They had to lay their, lean into the animal to transfer their sins to the animal to acknowledge that this animal is going to die now because of their sins. Because they heard that curse. And because it's a part of their nation, they all have become defiled by that sin. That's like so foreign to us. We're like, wait a minute, if they did it, then why am I defiled? Because we're, all, we're, we're in the same community. And that's really foreign to us as Americans and individualistic. Like, Whatever my country is doing, I'm defiled by it. Like, there's a certain sense that, okay, no, I didn't own blacks in slavery, but my people did. And I've reaped the benefits of slavery. There's a lot of things that I've reaped. Like, there's a certain amount of wealth and white privilege and a lot of things that I have advantages of in America today because of slavery that other people don't have. And no, I'm not the one that said, yay, I wanted all that. And I intentionally took that, but I'm reaping the benefits of it. And in some way, we're defiled because of our history. And there's a certain sense where I do have to go to people and say, I'm sorry for what we did to you. Homosexuality. A lot of them feel like God hates them because of the church. And no, I've never really said that to them, but there's a certain sense that when I meet somebody, I should start out the conversation by saying, I don't mean literally like the first second, but... I'm sorry for what my body has done and what they've communicated to you. And there's a certain sense where the whole community is guilty that somehow this guy got the impression that he could do that. And the communities might be partly responsible for that through ignorance or unintentionality, and now they're all defiled by it. And they all have to lay their hands on them, and they all have to atone. And then they all have to kill him. And why is there no sacrifice for this guy? Because he becomes a sacrifice, so to speak. His death becomes the atonement for the camp. And that's foreign to us. Even I, as I say this, it's like, that doesn't make sense, God. But it did to them. Because they were so community-oriented. And individuality didn't enter their mind. That's just, I mean, if you go to talk to people from Eastern countries... They, they can't comprehend our individualism. What do you mean, like, your sin doesn't affect you? What do you mean that's not fair, that you're getting punished for what they did? That's, that's, that's the way it works. Like, they're completely, they don't know how we think. They're like, what do you mean that, like, and it's the same way. And unfortunately, like, we're both so ingrained in our culture, no matter how much they explain it, I'm still like, okay, I get it, kind of, but in the same way, I don't. Because America is a part of me. And that's one of the things that's hard for us to relate to in this Bible is because it's Eastern and we're Western. And I actually learned a lot from what Easterners when I was in seminary. And they came over and they're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. I'm like, really? How? And they would tell me about their culture and community. I'm like, wow, that sounds like the Bible <laughs> because that's the way they think. Why is this here? Because this is an example of a man who missed what all these festivals are about. This is a man that missed what all these festivals are about. So that brings us to chapter 25. Now we get into the sabbatical year and the jubilee. Now remember I told you there are several Sabbaths. There's the weekly Sabbath that comes every seventh day. There's the high Sabbaths. that There's seven of them in every year. And now we're going to talk about the sabbatical year that happens every seven years. 
We kind of talked about this in Exodus. But in the sabbatical year, every seventh year, they're not allowed to plant anything. They're not allowed to prune anything. They're completely dependent on living off of whatever the ground naturally produces because it was left over from the previous crops, the previous year. So an entire year. Now, if you've ever talked to a farmer or grew up on a farm or had any connection to a farmer, like, if that harvest comes doesn't come in, like, that's hard. Like, you may not survive. And now you've got to go an entire year of intentionally not planting anything. The other thing that would happen is every slave would go free. Now, we already talked about this in Exodus and extensively. Is remember, slaves were only allowed to be slaves for six years. And their idea of slavery was completely different than ours. It was more of a bankruptcy kind of a thing. And so what this is saying is, even if you had a six-year contract and it got signed three years ago, and now it's the year of Jubilee, you're, you're free now. And so the year of Jubilee allows, says the land is not allowed to be planted, and all slaves can go free. Now what this does, this is a huge act of trust in God. This is a huge act of trust in God. What better way? This is like saying that in the seventh year, every year, the only food that you're allowed to get is whatever's left over on the shelves at the grocery store from the previous year. Nobody's allowed to restock the shelves at the grocery store in this year, the entire year. And you're not allowed to plant anything in your garden. So the only food that you have, all Americans, is all those cans of food and loaves of bread and Oreos and Twinkies that are left over from the stocking of the shelves last year. How long do you think we're going to go? Maybe a week? Especially once you tell everybody that, we know panic sets in and hoarding begins to happen. But yet somehow God will miraculously allow those shells to keep appearing food like Elijah with the oil and the flour. No matter how many times he just kept pouring it out, it just kept lasting and lasting and lasting and lasting. And that's what they're trusting God on. How incredible would that be? That would make you want to celebrate the festivals. And so it's an act of trust, but it's also letting the land rest. And what it's teaching them too is they're not allowed to just rape the land, so to speak. They're not allowed to just take and take and take and take and take for their own use and their own power, which America totally has not learned that lesson. And so they're supposed to let the land rest. Now, we now know that that's actually a biological or organic good thing to do. But we don't let the land rest. We just rotate crops. But God is just saying, let it rest. Now, how seriously did God take this? Incredibly serious. Because in 490 years, not once did they obey the sabbatical year. In 490 years... Not once did they celebrate the sabbatical year. And when Jeremiah comes at the end of that 490 years, Jeremiah says, you're going into exile. And all the prophets have told you, you're going to exile because of your idolatry and your lack of social justice. Those are the only two sins that they went into exile for. Not loving God and not loving their neighbor. And when they asked how long, Jeremiah replied and said, for every year that you did not let the land rest, you will spend that many years in exile. And how many years were they in exile? Seventy. 70. 
because it's 490 divided by 7. Did God take that seriously? Yes. So they went into exile for three reasons, basically. Not loving God, not loving people, and not loving the planet. And remember, if you remember Genesis, there's only three relationships you have. Your relationship with God, your relationship with humans, and your relationship with the environment. And God made you a ruler and subduer over them all. And when they failed to rule and subdue, God took them into exile for those three reasons. God, one of my biggest pet peeves is when I hear Christians say, oh, it doesn't matter whether we recycle or take care of the planet anyways, God's just going to nuke it one day. Now, one, you've completely missed the theology because if you go back to what I just said previously about the kingdom of God, what do you... I don't know. So this... (laughs) There's this line in the Revelation that says, and the tree of life was on both sides of the river, which is kind of God's way of saying there will no longer be a chance for sin because there's no tree of life and knowledge. There's just two trees of life, which means you can't sin anymore. But it also says, and the leaves of the trees will be for the healings of the nation. What does that mean? If all sin has been completely taken away and completely dealt with and everything is good and perfect now, what has to be healed? Maybe a, a universe that we've destroyed. I mean, even though we, dest- we defeated the Nazis in World War II, there was a lot of rebuilding that had to be done. We've done a lot of things on this planet. Well, one of our responsibilities be in the second coming of Christ when we're on this earth is to begin to repair the planet that we've destroyed. So in some ways... The more you take care of the planet now, not only are you obeying God by taking care of the planet that he told you to take care of and you reflect the character of God, but you're also creating less work for yourself to do in the second coming. God created this planet to give to you. And He's gonna, and if he told you, join me in expanding the garden, he's probably going to expect you to join him in repairing the garden. Now, I don't know. That's me, not the Bible, but... If you connect what God wanted you to do with the garden, and then you look at that line for the healing of the nations, it kind of makes sense. And so we are meant to take care of this planet. Now, that, and here's the thing. You're like, yeah, but the environmentalists are so crazy. They're like thinking the trees are alive, and they're tree huggers, and they're worshiping it, and they're like, they've made rats and animals like equal to us, and they, they throw paint and blood on people for having fur coats, and and they fight for their life of rats and all that kind of stuff. What do you expect from people who have defaced the image of God and don't know Christ? You're supposed to be the light of the world. Maybe if we were the leaders in environmentalism, we could teach them how you do it in a proper godly way. Now, I'm not saying that every single one of us have to be leaders environmentalists, because God has given us different gifts. But we all should be at least supporting each other and doing our part. And so the reality is God does value the creation. He created it. And he tells us the creation is groaning and childbirth pains, waiting for the day of its redemption. God is not going to blow this planet up. No more than you kill a mother after it gives birth. He's going to redeem it and transform it and renew it. And we have a part to play. And do people look at us and say, wow, you love all things. God, humans, and creation in a healthy way. And God took this seriously enough that he took them into exile for it. 
And so that was the year of Jubilee. It was meant to look out for each other and to look out for the land. So that brings us to the year of Jubilee. That was a sabbatical year. This is the year of Jubilee. In verse 8 of chapter 5. Year of Jubilee comes every 50 years. And every 50 years, the same thing happens. You're not allowed to plant anything or prune anything. All slaves go free, but a third thing happens. All debts get canceled. If only America did this one. <laughs> My mortgage would be canceled. Okay? Um, now, a couple of things you need to understand. All debts get canceled, which means if I borrow $20,000 from him because I need to buy a donkey. I don't know how expensive donkeys are, but I need to buy a donkey. And I don't have the money. I borrow money from him. And then what it means is if the year of Jubilee comes, he has to cancel that. Let's say I still owe him $15,000. He has to cancel that $15,000 and I no longer own him, owe him. And so all debts are clear. Now, God already commanded that no Israelite is allowed to charge any other Israelite interest. So if they're being obedient to the law, you're not allowed to do any interest. So no 6.4 interest rate on mortgages. It's just... Which, like, that was, I mean, that's what I cry over more than anything, is knowing that 90% of my money goes towards the interest, and at least in the beginning. No interest. Not only that, then the debt gets cleared. Now, God did say that you are to consider that how far away you are from Jubilee. Like, you're not allowed to go up to a guy and say, I want to borrow $3 million in two years to Jubilee. <laughs> Probably he's not going to let me do that. Because he knows. So I'm not allowed to take advantage of him because the year of Jubilee is coming. But it doesn't mean he's supposed to clear my debts. Now the other thing that happens, all lands go back to original owners. In the end of Numbers and in Deuteronomy, God assigned certain lands to each tribe. And we'll talk about that more when we get there. But he divided all the, the nation of Israel up among all the tribes. And he signed the land. Now, I could sell my land. Let's say I'm going into debt and I can't afford to take care of my land anymore. And I know if I sell my land, that will give me a lot of man money. And I'll keep my family from starving to death. So I sell my land off over here. But now I don't have any land anymore. And then another person could be buying lots of land. So God allowed for private, private property and he allowed for capitalism. He allowed me to buy more and more land if I'm able to do it. And I become this tycoon. And other people are selling their land and they're going to debt and they're, they're poor and they have no land anymore. But every 50 years, all lands go back to everybody. So no matter how many lands I've bought in the last 50 years, they all have to go back to their original owners and I have to give them up. And then if I've sold my land, I get it back. And the whole point of this is that God gave my family that land. And nobody has any other right to take it away from me. Now, he allows it to happen, but what it also means is the next generation that comes along is not going to be a spoiled generation because mom and dad got all this land and just kind of handed it to them. Or they're not going to suffer from the consequences of their parents who couldn't keep the land, whether because their parents were lazy or just bad things happen and no matter how hard you try, you can't deal with it. It means now I get a clean slate and I'm able to have my inheritance without the mistakes of my parents whether they were mistakes because of their fault or mistakes just because it really was crappy to live in that time period with that many famines and they just nobody could have survived it. And so the reality is each generation gets its own clean slate. So in some ways the reset button 
gets hit every 50 years like communism. And so notice how God is actually supporting both systems in a different kind of way than what we're used to. Because here's the thing. None of these forms of economy or governments are evil in themselves. What makes communism bad is not because all the wealth is being equally distributed among people. It's because a really corrupt, evil, power-hungry man is responsible for distributing all the wealth among people, and he doesn't do it right. And what makes capitalism bad is not that you have a, everybody trying to make their own profits, is you have a whole bunch of greedy people who are willing to violate and be corrupt to get more and more and more stuff. But if you have a perfect leader and perfect people, then there's nothing wrong with any of these forms of government. And what God is doing is protecting the next generation from whatever and give everybody a clean slate. Now, if you sell your land, you have to sell it according to how far. So I can't sell my land for full value two years away from the year of Jubilee because I know I'm going to get it back. And so God said that, and that's what he goes on. He talks about houses, and he'll talk about land, and he'll talk about whether your house is in this city or not. And he basically says that each one of these, you have to consider how many years you are from Jubilee, and then consider the value of the land and deduct the however many years you're away, and that becomes part of the price. Because if I am going to sell my land, and I know I'm going to get it back, I can't cheat him. The whole point is he can't cheat me by never letting me get my land back. But I can't cheat him either by selling it to him full price and then getting it back two years later. And so God is protecting both people on both ends because that's what God does. And that's your jubilee. Of course, they never did that. They never did that one either. I mean, if you're not doing the sabbatical year, you're not doing that. But here's the other kicker. Year 49 is a multiple of seven, which means it's a sabbatical year, which means they're not allowed to plant anything that year. And then year 50 is the year of Jubilee, which means they're not allowed to plant anything that year. That means it is two years of not planting anything. Now, some scholars think that what might be happening in the year of Jubilee is that year of Jubilee might be a partial year and that it's only the first 49 days of that 50th year. And, that in the, and then the day 50, they're allowed to start planting things again. But in those 49 days, then those 50 days, that's when all debts get canceled, lands get returned, that kind of stuff, and you're allowed to plant and crop, plant anything. And the, the grammar works. If you reword the grammar in a certain way, it works that way. And so some people say that the year of Jubilee might have not been a full year because they didn't need a full year to get all that done. So, but at the same time, do you really believe that God can take care of you? And that's the whole point. And so that's chapter 25. Is basically then how do you on a legal level do houses and land and, and people and slaves and all that kind of stuff in this year of Jubilee. But all this is to make sure that nobody gets abused or oppressed. All this is God's way. Look, these laws are protecting people from being oppressed and from being abused. And so those are the Sabbaths, the weekly Sabbath, the yearly Sabbath, the Jubilee, and then the seven high festivals. All of them are Sabbaths. 